So you should have those on your table. Please uh, take a copy of it. And we ask that you look those over and actually even answer them during the week. Uh, I know it's tough, that 30 minutes of hard work during a whole week, but I think you can do it. And the good news is if you do that, you're, you're somewhat prepared for the lesson. Uh, we will also try, endeavor to send out every Thursday afternoon, sometimes Friday morning, a message that goes along with this lesson. And so you should have gotten that. If you didn't, I might not have your uh, uh, email address or you may not have opened it. I don't know. But uh, you're supposed to be getting it. And if you don't, uh, let myself or Mike Mansfield at the table back there, let one of us know, give us your email address or whatever, and we'll look into it. Uh, we also, if we don't have your email, it's good to give it so we can give you notices about if the thing had to move down here or, you know, some, some uh, new development or something that you need to know about, we need, we'll, we're able to get a hold of you. So we do need your email for that and, and no other reason. Uh, this is the only thing you'll ever go to that has no agenda, absolutely no agenda. I mean, we don't want anything uh, other than to study the Bible. That's all we want to do. That's the only reason we're here. Uh, there's, this is non-denominational. The church just lets us use their facilities, uh, but it, it is non-denominational, so bring your friends and family. It's open to all. Love to have them. And uh, all we're going to do is study the Bible. That's our, our sole purpose, and I'm going to just try to be the guy that leads you through it, that facilitates it, try to keep my opinions out of it, and as always, we do not want to know your opinion, so. <laughs> uh, but we are studying an eight-week series called Doctrine for Dummies, and I don't want you to take that personally. But the point is, it's after that series you see in the bookstores, it's the basic doctrines of Christianity. And I got that idea because you just never see that taught. I mean, I've never heard a sermon about the basic doctrines. What does is, what is Christianity basically believe about, in today's lesson, of course, is about God's self-disclosure or about the revelation from God. What is it? How does it come? Uh, what do we believe about it? Uh, so that's what we'll be looking at today. Next week, we'll be looking at the, begin the, uh, looking at the Trinity, God. Uh, what is, who is God? What is God? What do we believe about God, the attributes of God? What has God done? And so that will be next week, and after that will be God the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit, uh, and then we'll go from there. Basic Christian doctrines, no matter which denomination you herald from, uh, everybody believes the basics uh, are the same. And so... Uh, we all believe that this is the Word of God, you know, so God has revealed Himself, uh, but we're going to go through the details of that, all right? Uh, so I think if I covered everything, any, any questions or something I forgot to talk about, uh, eight Mondays in a row, uh, lunch will be served, and um, we'll be in the Great Hall next week. Okay. We're all aware of the amazing information explosion of the 21st century. 
uh, a single daily newspaper that we have today has more info than a person in the 17th century encountered in a lifetime. Imagine that. Somebody in the 17th century, they just they didn't have information. They just had very little. We get more in a newspaper today than they got in their whole lifetime. But today we also have something that's, that's brand new to us as well, which is they call it the data flood. The data flood, meaning there is a rapid increase of the amount of electronic data that is coming our way in the world today. And it has caused the need for a lot of new terminology, massive storage facilities. I mean, if you're, if you're like me, every time you get a new phone, they've got a new word for, for the storage capacity. Initially, it was like this has 100 bytes, and then the next time I went, it was gigabytes, and now it's something like terabytes or something, you know? I mean, the thing has gone so far. There's so much information out there. Until 19, year 1900, human knowledge doubled every 100 years. Human knowledge doubled every 100 years. But by 1945, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. Now knowledge is doubling every year. Isn't that amazing? There's enough new knowledge every year now to double the amount of... And in the near future, they, they predict in the near future, the next couple of years, human knowledge will double every 12 hours. That's mind-blowing. I can't even get my arms around that, right? As far as your, your internet, your computer, in 2005, there were 70 million websites, 70 million web servers. In 2007, there was 135 million web servers. In 2014, ended with over a billion web servers. This is what's going on. I mean, the information deal is just, it's skyrocketing. You know, the data flood. And uh, as I said, the standard of measures changed. It started out with, they called it bytes. And then it went to kilobyte, which was 1,000 bytes. And then megabytes, which was uh, 1,000 squared. And then gigabyte, terabyte, petabyte, exabyte, zettabyte. And then now the latest one is the, I love this one, the Yoda bite. I'm not making this up. The Yoda bite is uh, a kilobyte to the eighth power. So that's a lot of zeros that we're talking about uh, of storage. Um, I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes last night, but this is about the third program 60 Minutes has had on cyber warfare, and uh, they had one on there last night. They had a guy who, who's working with the Defense Department to defend us against that, and he was talking. He said, information is so big and important now that most espionage and sabotage and military attacks are now and will be in the future cyber warfare. The old, the old days with the cloak and dagger spies are over. Now they just break into your computer and steal a billion times more information than they ever could have got in person. Uh, and so cyberspace technology has emerged as an instrument of power for all the, all the countries. Uh, the guy last night said, we are being attacked every day 
by, by China, by Russia, by North Korea, literally, and, and these are not just the governments, these are all the individuals that are trying to steal all the comp various companies' secrets and, and uh, manufacturing trade secrets, the whole deal. So it's all about information. Everybody's chasing information. Fortunes are being made. Technological breakthroughs are happening constantly. Medical cures. Everybody wants more and more information. The future is all about getting and how to get that information. And so my question today is, in, in a spiritual sense, what would really be the greatest imaginable information and knowledge that anybody could get? What do we really need? It has to be the area of knowledge that has eluded all the great thinkers. So it's got to be that area of knowledge that nobody really has. You know, everybody's out looking for the truth. Everybody wants to know about reality. Everybody wants to know their meaning and purpose. And so that seems to me to be the real truth that has eluded everybody. Because everybody's out there wandering around. they got no clue what's going on. they got no idea who they are how they were made, or what their purpose is. So it seems that the, the most important information would be about meaning and purpose, origination, and our future. Where are we going to end up? What's going to happen to us? Is there a life after death? To me, those are the most important pieces of information that anybody can have. Mark Twain, he said, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. <laughs> Think about that. That's really, I read that and I said, that guy's pretty smart. He must have been a successful author. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Millions of people pursuing knowledge but we know the greatest cure, everybody wants a cure for the diseases, everybody wants to you know, visit space and all, go to all these places, but the greatest cure, the greatest voyage is the salvation of the soul, the cure for our souls. And the greatest voyage would be our destination to heaven. That's really where our focus and our seeking of information should be a priority those two issues. And so the question is, well, is that possible? Is that information actually out there? Has God revealed himself? Is there a God? And if so, has he revealed himself? Do we have the self-disclosure of God so that we can find the answers to those questions like meaning and purpose and eternal destination? And the answer, of course, is yes. Uh, it comes, God has given it to us in two broad categories. One is called, theologians call it uh, general revelation, and two is special revelation. General revelation is just something out there that everybody can see. It's unlimited. It's the creation. As you go about and you see how beautiful and how big everything is, how ordered and complex the creation is, you got to wonder, who made this? How did this come to be? I know nobody here figured this out. I know none of us made this. And I find it hard to believe that this happened by chance for no reason at all. 
And so that's the general revelation that's out there that, that everybody in the whole world sees at the same time and is privy to. Special revelation, of course, is that those uh, special events, that intervention of God directly in revealing himself. And so the, the theophanies that you read about in the Bible, which means God, God shows up, God reveals himself. Like if you saw the movie The Ten Commandments, you know, God came down off the mountain and gave them the Ten Commandments. That's God's special intervention. And, of course, uh, Psalm uh, 19, talking about general revelation, said the heavens are telling of the glory of God. The immense universe is declaring the work of God's hand. Day and night, the creation reveals the knowledge of God. We look at it and we know how special and awesome and incredible it is, how huge it is. Romans 1.20, Paul writes, In the creation, God's invisible nature, his eternal power and deity has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So we look at it and we know this higher being, this higher power made this. And knowing that, we, seek, we should seek him. Right? So God has also, we're told in Romans 1, and, and I think we, we can figure this out, God has also revealed himself to us innately. When God created us, he created us, it's in our DNA. There cannot be any doubt that it's in our DNA that we know that there's a God. We may suppress it, but look... When you look at history and all the archaeologists and the anthropologists that have done all the studying of all ancient cultures and all civilizations, they found out that mankind has always been incurably religious. Every culture, every civilization out there throughout history has had a pursuit, a religious pursuit of a higher being. It's inside of us. It's in, it's in our soul. We know it. Now, obviously, a lot of people suppress that. Uh, they reject it. They deny it. But it is there. And so we're responsible, Paul says, to seek God. And since we know he's there and we can see his creation. And then in addition to that, the special revelation, God has actively intervened uh, in, it, in several ways, several times, to make himself known through what we would call propositional phrases, meaning he's put it in writing. He's put it in writing. So in that special revelation, you know, I'll give you two examples. The first one would be uh, Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, you can turn to that or I'll just tell you what happened. This is, the, this is the story after the Exodus when God told Moses to take Israel to Mount Sinai. And so it takes them, I think, if I remember right, about three months, and they get to uh, Mount Sinai, and God tells them, okay, have the people camp in the plains right below the mountain, and I am going to come down to them and reveal myself to them there at Mount Sinai and give them my law. And so they made a covenant with God that he would give them his holy righteous standard. We know it as the Ten Commandments. And they would agree to keep it. And God said, you will be my special people. 
I will reveal myself to the world. You'll be my mediatorial people. I'll reveal myself to the world through you. I'm going to give you my law, and I want you to represent me to the rest of the world. Uh, and so there in, in Revelation, excuse me, uh, Exodus 19, and then in 20, chapter 20 as well, God came down, and it was an incredible sight and sound. I mean, they saw the glory of God coming down. The earth shook. God spoke to them, and it sounded like thunder. His voice sounded like thunder. And the smoke and the glory, and the, it was just an incredible thing. And the earth shook, and they heard his voice like thunder directly. This is about three million people camped in this broad plain. And God came down from above and revealed himself and gave them the Ten Commandments. I call this the second greatest event in history. First would be, of course, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, which is the second special revelation I wanted to talk to you about. But there at Mount Sinai, when God gave them his perfect holy standard, now they know that they're not going to be judged on the curve. He's not going to pick out some you know, random bad guy and say, as long as you're better than this guy, you get into heaven. And he's not going to like have some scales that he weighs your good deeds and your bad deeds on. Oh, your good deeds outweigh your bad. No. It's clear at Mount Sinai that God said, you keep these Ten Commandments perfectly, and live up to my standard. That's it. That's the deal. And of course, the rest of the Old Testament is the history of them failing to do so. And that's important to realize because in failing to keep God's standard, they now know that they need a Savior. Right? So God sent a Savior which is that second great event, the second greatest special revelation that we're talking about here, when Jesus came into the world, the incarnation. So in the incarnation, God took on the flesh. John chapter 1 says that he calls Jesus, he calls the Christ the Word, the Word of God, because he is revealing the truth, he's revealing God in the incarnation. So he's called the Word, the Word of God. And we're told in John 1.14, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. We beheld the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 18, no man has seen God. Before this, no man has seen God, but the only begotten God, the Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And so Jesus came into the world and explained who God is, what the attributes of God are, what God expects of each of us to receive the pardon, to receive the provision for their sin that God was providing. And you have all the teaching of Christ that represents the Word of God. You know, all the, about love and, the, and uh, everything that Jesus taught. Special revelation. 
And then the apostles, his disciples that we now call the apostles, were entrusted with writing down the, the important things that God directed them about their eyewitness accounts of, of who Jesus was and what he did and what he said. And we call that the New Testament, right? The author of Hebrews uh, in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3 says that the Old Testament was God speaking through the prophets. But the New Testament is God speaking through his son, Jesus Christ. So special revelation in the Old Testament. God spoke directly. He even, his hand even wrote the Ten Commandments. And in the New Testament, the incarnation of Christ came into the world, revealed God to everyone, and then his apostles wrote it down for everyone to have. And this is, this is what your New Testament is. The, your New Testament was indirectly written, it was inspired by Christ, by Jesus. Which brings us... Uh, you know, to the propositional writing or the written word that you have there before you, uh, the world's view of the Bible, of the scriptures, is that it's some kind of encyclopedia of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. And it's real disconnected, a bunch of wild, crazy, disconnected thoughts and what have you. And I've had people tell me that, and I said, so you've been able to read the whole thing and study it and been instructed? Well, no. Well, do you have a Bible? No. Okay, well, what made you think all that? Well, that's what somebody told me, you know, what he prefers to think. But what is the Bible's view of itself? You know, if, if this is the Word of God, you would assume that there would be evidence within that it is, and of course, every book in the Bible says that it's the Word of God. It says that it's the Word of God. So God's uh, view, the Bible's view of itself is that it's God's organized self-disclosure. It's revealing God, uh, revealing who He is and what He requests of us, what He expects of us. It's His Word written down in propositional Phrases. And if this is God's word, it must be unique and special. You would expect it to be unique and special, wouldn't you? Absolutely. So just a few words about that. It's, this is not just a book. We look at this and we say, we call it the Bible, which in Greek means book. So you think of this as a book. But what it is, is a composite of 66 books. There are 66 books in your Bible they're written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years. These are diverse authors living at different times and places on three continents. The authors were kings. They were peasants. They were intellectuals, fishermen, scholars. Some of them were educated, some uneducated. Some of them were doctors, poets, even had a plowman. Most of them... Most especially the New Testament authors were just average Joes. They were fishermen. They were laborers. They were average Joes who became the greatest messengers from God of all time. Uh, they first spread God's word orally and then they recorded it 
in writing for future generations. And so the question is, well, how could an average Joe write something this awesome, this important? How could that have happened? Well, again, the, the, the New Testament is unique in that it was written by guys like Peter and John and, and these guys that were just regular guys. They were fishermen. They were laborers. Uh, and they all wrote individual. They, they wrote their book or their letter in the New Testament's case. All the books in the New Testament are actually letters that they wrote to churches or to individuals. They wrote them uh, individually at different times and places to different audiences with different purposes and reasons. And then they were assembled later over the next hundred years, brought back together by the churches, and assembled into one book. So you got all these different circumstances that they wrote for him. When Paul wrote his, he was in prison. Moses, he was on a 40-year camping trip. <laughs> Jeremiah was in a dungeon. Daniel was in Babylon, a foreign nation. Joshua was on a military campaign. David wrote his in war, and Solomon wrote his in peace. All different. And yet, all 66 books are bound together by historical sequence. You can start at the beginning in Genesis and read through it, and there's an historical narrative, a sequence that goes all the way through it. There's no other book like that. Pick any other religious book and it's not there. That's, that doesn't happen. Forty different authors, 66 different books, over 1,500 years, and they're all organized in a historic sequence. Historic narrative goes with them. And not only that, they all have the same theme. The redemption of mankind. All 66 books are about the redemption of mankind. Something is wrong. Something is missing with the human race. And God is actively working to provide what, for what is missing. And of course, ultimately, that would be Jesus Christ. And so... Amazing. They all, the same historical narrative, the same theme, all put together. None of these guys, most of them didn't know each other. But it works. It's almost miraculous. <laughs> that happened. All 40 of these sincere, well-respected, dedicated men believed that the scripture is the word of God. And they wrote in whichever letter you read, this is the word of God. I mean, so they believed it. Is there something wrong? Are they bad guys? Are they liars? No, they're all well-respected men that gave their lives for what they were saying. So I think there's a lot of credibility there. Jesus confirmed this also. He constantly quoted from the Old Testament, and he said that the Old Testament was inspired by the Holy Spirit. When he quoted David, he said that. 
He, he wrote, David said, wrote, by the Holy Spirit, and then quoted uh, the psalm. So that's its view of itself. So the question for us, the human race, is how can something written by men be considered the Word of God? I mean, they, it was written by men, wasn't it? You've heard that one before, too. So how did that happen? How can this be the, the Word of God if it was written by men? A couple of passages I want you to look at if you have your Bible there. Turn to 2 Timothy 3 in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There, there are two images that I want to look uh, at in two different passages, and the whole New Testament uses these images of how the New Testament, how the whole Bible came to us, written by men, but how, in what sense it is it the Word of God. And the first image is the word God-breathed. Your, your translation probably says inspired. All Scripture is inspired. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is inspired. The word there is theopneustos, which means that literally it is God-breathed. God breathed His Word through these men and women that wrote this. God-breathed. It is inspired. And look, all Scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable. It's important. It's necessary for teaching. You're going to teach the truth? You've got to have the truth to teach. For teaching, for reproof, for correction. And you know how bad people need reproof and correction. They're so far off. People are so out of whack. I mean, they need to be brought back. They need to be corrected. They need to be put on the right path and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We all want to do good works. We all talk about good works. But do you hear what the, the author here is saying? You can't do truly good works in God's view without his word. Because other good works would be appreciated by men. They'd be appreciated by you that is doing it. But if you're looking for the favor, the reward of God, it's got to be according to God's truth. Okay? And that's what he's saying here. You need the word of God to actually do good works. And then the second passage I want you to look at is 2 Peter. Keep going to your right. Second Peter, verse chapter one. This is uh, the the apostle Peter, the big fisherman, talking, and and he's been telling his audience here in the in the beginning in chapter one that you know he's going to keep communicating with them. He's going to continue to teach them. He's going to continue to correct them when they get off track. And here's why. Verse 16, 2 Peter 1, 16. For we, and by we he means the apostles, means the authors of the New Testament. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think that's a shot <laughs> at all these Greek philosophers that have come up with all those wild Greek mythology stories that, that was prevalent in the Greek world, which they lived in. And he says, it's not like we made all this stuff up like they did. But here's the difference. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, what we're writing to you, we didn't dream it up. Somebody did. It's not hearsay. Peter's saying, we saw it. Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain and they saw Jesus' glory, the transfiguration. They went up. They beheld him. And they heard the words of God, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So he says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, his glory. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory by God the Father. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Peter's saying, I saw that, I heard that. And I'm telling you that. And so Peter says, we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word, meaning the spoke, a prophet was a spokesperson for God. And so he's saying this is the prophetic word, the truth that we told you about what we saw and heard. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. That's a great image for revelation from God, isn't it? This is a dark world, and the truth from God is like light shining and illuminating this dark world. It's like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Looking forward to that day in the future of the resurrection. But know this, this is great, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy, no words that people claim from God, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit from God. And so there's the, the second image. The first image was God breathed. Peter's image is just basically the same, but it's different. It's the image, literally, of the wind filling the sails of a ship. That's usually what, the way this phrase is used. On a sailing vessel, you wouldn't see the wind. You'd see the sail. The wind would fill the sail and move the ship. And that's what God's inspiration was like for the authors of the Bible. He moved them to write what they wrote, the New Testament. So Peter is uh, explaining in his way, as Paul earlier explained in his way, God breathed, God moved. This is the word of God, even though human beings wrote it down. It wasn't dictated. Each guy used his own uh, writing skills, his own education, his own style. But it was God breathed. God moved him to do it when he wrote it. And so this is the inspired word of God.
another great passage, we won't turn there, take the time to turn there, but in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, you can write it down, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13, Paul says, you know, the Spirit of God reveals the Word of God. And so the natural man, they could not write this and they could not study it so as to understand it because it requires the help of the Holy Spirit to write it for the authors to have written it. And it also requires the help of the Holy Spirit for us to fully believe and understand it. It's a spiritual thing. He said, do you know the, do you know the mind and thoughts of God? Well, that's kind of a loaded question, right? It's one of those rhetorical questions you have to say, no. Because if the guy next to you says, oh, yeah, I know, then you need to take him directly to the funny farm. <laughs> we cannot possibly know the thoughts and minds of God unless he reveals them. And Paul is saying God's spirit has revealed his truth, his word, to the authors, and they have passed it on to us in the written word. Great passage. So that's the, the, the great thing about the, that idea of inspiration, uh, and, and this is the word I would use because this is the word the Bible uses. It's, it's inspired by God. What is this? It's just inspired by God. A lot of people like to throw around a term that I would not use, and I'll tell you why. Uh, a term that people typically use that brews a lot of controversy is inerrancy. Okay? Now, before you attack, let me explain what I mean. The original writings were inerrant, without error. But what we have now... With, with all the different translations. I mean, you have the NIV, I have the New American Standard, you have the King James. Which one of those is inerrant? Because they're different. You see what I'm saying? To say that it's inerrant, you have to qualify it with all, you have to say, number one, qualification, it was the originals and not what we have now. Number two qualification is uh, you, 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 you have to rule out phenomenal language. Because the Bible in many places talks just like we do. It says the sun came up. Well, we know the sun literally, scientifically doesn't come up. It's the earth that's moving, not the sun. But so, I mean, you have to give them a break on that. And there's a whole bunch of things like that that you have to qualify with. They had something they called the, uh, the Chicago Conference on Inerrancy back in 1978. And every denomination sent several of their ministers and theologians to be a part of this to determine what inerrancy was. And I've looked at it. It's about 20 pages full of qualifications. But here's my final answer for that is, the Bible nowhere says, never, never mentions, doesn't use the word inerrant. So use it if you want to. Just know the qualifications of it. But I'm using inspired because that's the word the Bible uses and that's the one I can defend. That's the one I can defend. 
One of the other qualifications for inerrancy is you have to rule out copious errors because there's quite a few, nothing, nothing really important, nothing that changes the meaning, but there are definitely copious errors. Between the different manuscripts, we have thousands of ma ancient manuscripts, and there are copious errors. And there's several words that are reversed. Like, like if you look at them, instead of Christ Jesus, it might say Jesus Christ. Well, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't make any difference at all. But if you're saying it's inerrant, without any error, then you really, you know, you got a problem. So, uh, easy solution. This is the inspired word of God. That's what it is. And that's what the Bible says it is. Uh, real quick, uh, you may have heard of the term the canon, which in Greek just means the rule or authority. And that came to be the term used for the books that were in the Bible because, you know, there were other books that were written, other letters that were written at the ch churches during uh, the end of the first century and in the second century actually used. Uh, but the church settled on 27 books that are in your New Testament and called them the rule or the canon. The rules they used to choose those 27 books, uh, it had to have apostolic authority. Therefore, it had to have been written in the first century. All those apocrypha, all that stuff that goofball Dan Brown wrote about, um, that was all written in the second and third century. And guess what? The church never, never even considered any of that garbage, that Gnostic stuff. They never even considered it. Dan Brown acted like, you know, they did, they didn't. Uh, we have lists, by the way, we have lists of the books uh, of the Bible that the early church used. The, the very next generation, after the apostles, we have lists. And by the second century, they had brought together, remember all these were written individually and sent out to all these different places, and it took about 100 years from all to be gathered back into one book. Right? But by the second century, all, literally all the churches had the four gospels, and they had the letters of Paul, and the epistle of Peter, and, and they said, these are inspired. These are in the canon, all right? So, uh, but the rules, uh, secondly, had to be widely accepted by all the churches. It had to be considered orthodox. In other words, uh, it couldn't contradict the other books, no contradictions. And fourthly, uh, it required the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And by that, they meant that lives were being changed by this book. By studying, by living by this book, Lives were being changed. Because the Bible says the Word of God is living and active. There's a, there's a dynamic to the Word of God that changes lives. Right? I saw this uh, story that illustrates that. Uh, some World War II soldiers were shot down on a Pacific island that used to be inhabited by cannibals. And these cannibals approached them. Missionaries had converted them years before, so they came forward seeing these Americans, and they had their Bibles in their hands. And the soldier said, well, we don't need that. We don't need those. And the cannibal said, well, be glad that we do need them, because if it weren't for this book, we'd be eating you right now. <laughs> 
Yeah. It changed the cannibal's life, you see. And so that was the fourth. And so uh, when Christianity, you know, as you know, the Roman Empire persecuted Christianity, killed Christians, fed them the lions and all that for about 275 years. Well, in the fourth century, when it became legal, when Christianity became legal, and then eventually the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire in the fourth century, they began having open church councils where churches from all over the Mediterranean world would get together and talk about different issues. And one of the big ones, of course, is which books, which writings are inspired and should be in our canon, okay? And in the church councils, like the, church, the Council of Carthage, the Council of Hippo, there was a whole bunch of them, they all agreed. Can you imagine that? All the, getting all the Dallas churches together and getting them to all agree? Again, it was a miracle. But they all agreed on the 27 books that are in your Bible by the end of the 4th uh, century, by 400 A.D. The, the canon was set, these 27 books that are here now. And as I said, we have the list that they used before that uh, of the second-generation churches. And uh, you know they had a few disputes over the book of Hebrews because they didn't know who wrote it. Uh, the epistles, the second and third epistles of John, the book of Revelation. Uh, but other than that, they all agreed, and they all uh, eventually agreed to Hebrews and the epistles of John and also Revelation. So my conclusion is, <laughs> you know, the skeptics, and I've actually had somebody tell me this before, they say, if God would just show himself, I can't believe in an invisible God, if he would just show himself, and give me specific instructions. Tell me what he wants me to do. And one more thing. He needs to do something about evil. This is a rough world with a lot of bad things going on. And if there was a God in heaven, he would do something about it. So those three things. Show himself, give me specific instructions, and do something about evil. What have we just covered? What just happened? In Exodus 19 and 20, God showed up. He showed up to such an extent that the people of Israel came to Moses afterwards and said, that's the scariest thing I've ever seen or had experienced. I can't live through that again. Have God talk to you in the future, and you tell us. And he said, there are no atheists in Israel today. God showed up. And then, of course, in the incarnation we read, God took on the flesh and came into the world and revealed himself. God has showed himself. And the second one, instructions. The Ten Commandments. Does anybody know how the Ten Commandments have changed since then? That was about 1400 B.C. How many changes have been? Wait a minute. Jeff says none. Not one word of the Ten Commandments has changed. Nor will it ever. It is absolute all these goofy laws that our Congress passes now, they'll change 20 times in the next 100 years. Every time the Supreme Court changes, they'll change. The Ten Commandments have never changed, and they never will. We have God's perfect, holy standard. We have instruction. And, of course, Jesus continued that. And what about the third one? Do something about evil. 
What do you think Christ did on the cross? He defeated evil. Christ defeated sin. Sin and the condemnation that results from sin is defeated on the cross. It has been atoned for. And Christ is coming back to end evil in the world completely and set up the kingdom of God. So God's done all three of those things, right? This is the word of God. This is what we live for. This is the information that we actually need. That's eternal. All that other information, all the, what did I call it, the Yoda bites? <laughs> the Yoda bites, you can live without that. The Yoda bites is passing away, but the word of God endures forever. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. With your word, thank you for revealing yourself to us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word and change our lives. Just light a fire within us, Lord, so that we work to be like Christ and represent him well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>